Questions Programs. Welcome to I Have So Many Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you get it from Apple or iTunes. It helps bring in new listeners as I work towards establishing my cult of personality, which as I have repeatedly stated ad nauseum, is the sole point of this entire endeavor. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. The email is at IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The show is all over the Twitter at IHaveSoManyPod, or just look up I Have So Many Questions Podcast in the search function of your Twitter app, or if you're really old, you use a laptop to go on Twitter. Facebook.com forward slash I Have So Many Questions Podcast. There's also an Instagram page, but why bother? The show is hosted on Anchor.fm and through their mobile app. Also streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Radio Public, and iTunes and Apple Podcasts. For as long as those two things are still around. This is a momentous episode because... This is the first guest that this show, which has been around for 15 months, this is the first guest that this show has had, and I am super, super geeked about it too. Not just because I had a guest, there's a guest on the show, but who the guest was. I had a lot of fun talking to this person, being able to pick her brain about the things that she's passionate about. Not just what those things are, but how she does them. A lot of creative endeavors, it's not just what you're doing, it's the process of doing them uh, that is almost as, tre- almost as intriguing as the work product or the output itself. It's what do you do and how do you do it? And I had a lot of fun, not just talking about her process and her, uh, her various uh, creative endeavors, but also talking about asking each other questions. My guest was author and podcaster, although she's, she produces an audio, she writes, produces, and performs an audio drama. So I guess she's, I don't know if that really qualifies as a podcaster as more, uh, more than a, I don't know. I don't know what a better word would be for, for somebody who does an audio drama. I'm not sure if podcaster is the appropriate term, but we'll just go with podcaster. She's an author. She has her own audio drama podcast, uh, an original work from her own writing, VP Morris. And she had read my pinned tweet on Twitter, which is, which is about the, the open submission policy. If you want to be a guest on the show, if you want to co-host the show, if you want to be a permanent co-host of the show, or if you just want to take over the freaking thing outright, you know, at this point, if the price is right, I'm willing to, I'm willing to give this up. But she contacted me a couple of weeks ago. She had listened to the random questions episode of the show. She liked the concept. She liked the format and she wanted to know if she could come on the show and do a random questions episode. And I was like, absolutely. You can come on the show and read listings out of the phone book if you want. I am totally open to, you know, if somebody wants to come on my show, what am I going to say? No. And so we made arrangements to, for her to be on the show, to set up a time and a date and a time and how we're going to, and there's certain technical logistics that got to be worked out. 
when you have two people in two different places going to do an interview. And she had, in her initial DM, she had sent me some ideas for questions, which I absolutely loved. And then I ran into a brick wall of ideas. I could not think of any random questions of my own when you're until the clock really started ticking, you know, 24 to 48 hours in advance of the of this of our uh, scheduled time to do the interview. I'm putting it out on my personal Facebook page. Hey, anybody got any random questions that you want to, you know, I'm having a guest in the show. Are there any random questions that you'd want me to ask this person or you'd like to hear the show talk about? And I got some good feedback on those. I don't know. We didn't, (laughs) the ones that I got from Facebook, I didn't, we didn't actually use, but we've saved them for next time. And they were really good. I enjoyed them. And I put it out there on Twitter as well, but I was running into a wall until about 24 to 48 hours ahead of time. And then even then, I think the night before I thought of two or three on the fly, I just pulled them out of the air. This episode, my guest the inaugural guest of the I Have So Many Questions podcast, the, the the first guest and maybe possibly the only guest on my show is the author and creator and performer of the Dead Letters podcast. For your consideration and your enjoyment, my conversation with VP Morris. Oh, there were a couple of technical issues that emerged on this episode and on the recording of our interview, particularly at the end when we're talking about New York City, where she uh, where she went to college, that experience we had a good conversation about that experience, which is, which I found very fascinating. But there was a technical issue the uh, the connection that we had got severed in the middle of that conversation. So you'll hear me talking, and then it'll go dead. There's like a three or four second silence, and then you hear her talking about New York City. And that's where the call that we had got dropped. When you get toward the end of the episode, when you hear that happen, don't worry about it. For your enjoyment and for your consideration, my interview with my special guest, VP Morris. My name is Fiona Weatherly, and all I ask before I die or lose myself completely is that you listen to what I've been through over the last few months. I don't know who I am anymore, or what I've become, but I know that she is coming for me again. She won't stop, not until I agree to continue what she has started, and the men, they're after me too. They want me to keep quiet, so this recording must live on in case they get what they're after. I can't call anyone to save me. No one is supposed to know where I am. I can't call my parents. They are in hiding, or may have already been executed. My friends won't be much help, and I can't even rely on the man I was supposed to marry because he betrayed me in one of the worst ways. So that's why I must turn to you, this outdated tape recorder I found in my hideout, my family's cabin. Everything is so strange, but I have to tell you what I've seen, or I fear I'll go to my grave with this knowledge. And I guess the best place to start this strange story is the day I received my first dead letter. VP Morris, welcome to the I Have So Many Questions podcast. Thank you for having me today, Brian. You are a, and I'm going completely off your Twitter bio, you are a writer as well as a podcast host. So we do have a we have a few things in common, and you and I had talked through Twitter, and you had listened to the random questions episode that I had done about three or four episodes back, and um, we had talked about that. So I'm going to throw a couple of random questions at you, although they're not really going to be random. And then I know there were some other questions that you and I had talked about that um, in the similar vein that we were going to try to wrap our heads around. 
The first question I have is, what does the VP stand for? Uh, so I'm not going to say what the V stands for. It's my legal first name. It's super rare, so um, especially in the United States because it's a French name. It's a pretty much a dead giveaway, especially in conjunction to my real last name of who I am. You Google it, and there's only one. So for the sake of some privacy, I won't say what the V is, but the P is for Petra, which is one of my multiple middle names because my family is from Belgium. So it's a tradition in Dutch culture to give your children like two or three middle names. So that's uh, where the P comes from. How many middle names did they give, did your parents give you? I originally had three and then I dropped one of them because it was getting way too cumbersome. So I now have two. Was it cumbersome because it, the was it because of cumbersome because of the, the spelling or was it too many syllables or or um, what was the cumbersome issue on that one? Well, part of the problem was I think when I was born they registered the like wrong order with the social security office and like with my birth certificate. So it was oh. when I had to go get my driver's license. Um, it was a bit of a hassle because even though there's clearly only one of me because there's so many names like there's no other person with this name um i had to it just for the sake of making things clear i just cut one of them and kept the the two that kind of flowed a little bit better it still causes problems to this day um because like if it's abbreviated with like a middle initial p or a middle initial j for my other middle name it like the banks read it as like a different person, even though I'm the same person. So it's still a hassle. So tip for parents, please, only one middle name. <laughs> so your so your name, your full name is so unique that the government, when it came time to process paperwork, botched it. And as a result, you're forced to capitulate by dropping one of your names. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Only, only, I don't want to say only in America because I'm willing to bet that probably happens all over the world, but that's, that's just kind of a sad commentary on things. Now you are the host of the Dead Letters podcast. Can you tell me about, can you tell me what your show's about? Um, yeah. So it's a audio drama. It's about, um, a few women over the course of history who receive mysterious letters from the past warning them of death and destruction if they don't listen to what the sender says. And season one focuses on only one of these women, and her name is Fiona. She is a college student in our modern times, and she's just having to deal with the ramifications of getting her first and second and soon-to-be third dead letter. Now, how many seasons do you have mapped out for this, if all goes well? If all goes well, I could probably do a season per recipient, so I could probably end up doing four additional seasons, but I could also maybe shorten it and make maybe two or three more seasons. I'm still feeling, I have all their stories mapped out, just how I want to tell them is still something I haven't fully worked out yet. Audio dramas, I'm a big audio drama person some respects i think i've got like a dozen audio dramas saved in my um in my uh podcast stream system that i haven't gotten to yet and i have so many i'm just fascinated by the whole process of doing an audio drama from the scripting to the casting to the recording to the engineering the producing of it music everything i just find that whole process fascinating how many people do you have or, well, let me ask you this. How many episodes have you recorded so far? They're all recorded. Already. Oh, they're all done? Yes. 
Okay, so you you do the whole did you do the whole season in advance and then yeah. put them out like once a week or once every two weeks or once a month or something like that? Yeah, I'm doing so I recorded them. So I wrote the script over the winter, um, like from December to February of this last winter. And then I recorded and did the audio editing over this spring. So um, I wanted it to be released towards the fall, just because fall in general has more of a creepy vibe. So I kind of had to sit on it over the summer. But at least it's all done, so I just record my intro and schedule it for every Tuesday until the first season wraps uh, right before Halloween. And then I'm assuming you would plan to do the second season kind of following the same schedule? Yeah, I'd hope to. I still have stuff up in the air about what I want to do. If um, I'm considering like a Kickstarter or a Patreon or even maybe partnering with some sort of podcast network for more funding, I still need to figure that out. But I want to... Since it's right now, it's only me voicing Fiona. I'd like to add more voice actors. Um, thankfully, because it's being told in first person, I can get away with only having me do it. But, for example, the first woman to receive a dead letter has an Irish accent, and I cannot pull that off. So I would like to hire someone who can do that because I sound idiotic when I try. Yeah, um, I could totally see that. I've I've tried to just ingest to pull off the occasional accent and at home around the house with my wife or my kids, and they just look at me like I'm completely inept, and <laughs> and I can't fault them for it. It's 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 pretty awful. Um, I'm, although I do I do a fair Russian accent, but it's basically you're most of the time it's just trying to talk with marbles in your mouth. Yeah. So yeah. you're the only. So in each episode that you've for the first season, it's you're the only cast member and you're telling mm -hmm. it from a first person narrator narrator point of view. Yeah. Is it like in a journal style type of diary type of thing, like a Bram Stoker's Dracula type of thing? Or is it more of a your more conventional narration like you'd see in a novel type of thing? It's um it's actually it starts off with a tape recording and then I have it so that it kind of so the first few minutes, it's her talking. It's a it's a flash forward to the last uh, episode of this season, and she's talking into a tape recorder. And then it sort of flashes back, and it's in in not tape recorder, so it's being told kind of like in a story where it goes from like black and white to color. Um, so it's really actually her sort of confession, not that she's actually guilty of anything, but sort of her telling what has happened and what has led her to be where she is at at the end of the season into a tape recorder because she's afraid she may not live through the next few hours and she wants to have a record of her time. And you are also a writer, going again solely off of your Twitter bio. Um, you have a book out there called Shadowcast? Um, actually, I'm seeking representation for it from a literary agent, so um, I have written it. It has not been published. I am trying to get... Um, you know, some representation. I'm hoping a, a big five publisher would be willing to pick it up. Um, it's a really fun book. I had a great time writing it. So I really hope that it um, becomes a real thing sometime soon. I don't want to go into too much detail about it because mm -hmm. obviously you're trying to get representation and that yeah. type of thing. But um, what uh, can you describe what genre of uh, literary genre it would fall under? Um, it's thriller. It has some elements of horror and a few uh, a subplot of romance, but it's mostly a kind of investigative mystery thriller. How long did it take you to write it? About a year. So I took 
the summer of 2018, I had um, a few weeks off in between ending one job and starting another. So I had some downtime and I really focused on getting the first draft out. And then I took a few months off and then I like really attacked it and made it a readable book. And um, that would took me till I think about a few months ago. And so now I'm in the process of querying uh, agents. Okay. Um, how long is it or how many pages? Because I'm trying to – I do, as time allows, I have like three things that I'm trying to write in completely different genres. In the evening after everybody goes to bed, I sit down with the laptop at about 10 or 10.30 and try to crank out an hour or so. How many pages have you is – the, is the book? Um, it's so it's 72,000 words, which will in published book format be close to 300, maybe like 290, depending on the margins and stuff. And are you hoping for like a hardcover release if it were to get published or is it more of a soft, soft cover? Um, I think actually it's probably more of a soft cover, but I, I just want it out there. I was like, whatever form they want to make it, I will sign off and just get it out there. I'm fine with whatever. You know, as long as it's a reasonable publishing contract, I would just I would love to have it be out in the world because I just think a lot of people would enjoy it. The one, and I run into this a lot myself. The one temptation that seems almost irresistible is to keep going back to what I've done previously, go back and look at it again and again and again and tweak it and make changes. And most of the time, it's just for seeing spelling errors or sentence structure and saying, oh, that sentence makes no sense at all and tweaking it. But there's that temptation to keep going back and going back and going back. How do you resist that urge to constantly revise something as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm done with that chapter or I'm or for the book itself, I'm done. It's done. I'm finished. I can do no more. Um, I kind of have to set, so I, I'm, I like to think of things in sort of chunks, so either chunks of books or ch chunks of time. So I'll give myself like this month, it is for the spelling errors. And then the next month it is for character continuity checking. So I sort of, you know, unless obviously I find something that's terrible and needs to be fixed instantly, I kind of have to force myself to make peace with it because really, I don't think we're ever really done. You kind of have to force yourself to be done because you can even go back into, you know, I've, I've heard published writers say they pick their book up off the shelf and think, oh, I should have put that chapter earlier. So you kind of just have to force yourself to be done and let the world take it. Your Before you started writing, what was your process? Did you outline? Did you have like an extensive outline where the entire book was mapped out and all you had to do was just kind of put in the narrative and put in the exposition and everything? Or was it kind of a... You, it was a kind of a um, – it took on a – it kind of grew on its own. It developed as you went. I mean it's a combination of both because I think even if you're the most detailed outliner in the world, you're never going to completely stick to it just because the process of writing is different than the process of outlining. But I was way more structured with Shadowcast. I had previously written another manuscript in the young adult genre, and I didn't get any I, – I got a lot of agents interested, but none of them – wanted to really stick their neck out for it because it's a bit of a unconventional book for the age demographic. And I was a bit more of a pantser, so to speak, someone who just kind of like didn't have a plan with that one. 
And with Shadowcast, I decided to take a different uh, approach and have it a way more structured, especially since it's a mystery and I needed to make sure I wasn't revealing too much too soon. Yeah, with a mystery, you kind of you have to you have to know how it's going to end, and you kind of have to know you ha- it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle you kind of have to construct mm-hmm. um, before you ever start actually constructing it. You've got to have the whole thing, I would think, fairly mapped out, and then you know things about character development or character construction that aren't essential to the mystery itself. You could probably develop and fill in as you go. And that type of thing. Would you think? Would you consider yourself as a writer to be kind of a? There's one specific type of genre that you want to focus your writing on, or is it a? You know, you're willing to do try anything once type of writer. I mean, it would kind of depend on. I would have to listen to advice from like agents or publishers on stuff because choosing to go into a, like a new genre can like break someone's reputation so i would have to do it with like uh, a plan in mind but for the most part i really enjoy the thriller mystery horror genre the sort of darker side of fiction and i i'm pretty much fine with writing in that genre for close to the rest of my life i have some ideas for like a bit more lighter kit not kitschier just like sweeter like young adult novels that wouldn't really fit into the dark genres that I like, but I can put those on the back burner for a while. Where where do you go for like um, inspirations, uh, ideas, um, Actually, something to, something to get the the, the brainstorming? Um, I get a lot of my ideas from true crime podcasts. So I've been a big fan of podcasts and pretty much all forms but I, I have a particular fondness for true crime or, or like folklore um, for about four almost five years now and just sort of uh, the the real life terrors of day-to-day life is sometimes enough to get my um, I guess my wheels turning in my head for a, a story idea with with Shadowcast it's it's loosely inspired by serial which was you know a very big deal I think in like 2015 or 2016. Uh, so it has that when I was listening to it, I was starting to get the basic idea or the basis ideas for my novel. Yeah, everybody, I think we when we think about memorable fictional characters, most of the time they're inspired by real people. I mean, mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter was like the amalgamation of three or four or half a dozen different serial killers mm-hmm. that were real people. And and then, of course, you've got your your stock Nazi villains and that type of thing because yeah. there were actual Nazis and so mm-hmm. forth. Well, let's kind of jump into some of these questions that we've got listed here. Do you want to go first or would you uh, or would you like me to take the first swing at one of these? Um, let's see. Yeah, how about you go first and I'll pick up after that. Kind of piggybacking off of uh, the conversation that we just had. As a reader, what's your favorite literary genre? It's still going to be in the thriller genre or as like a whole, I guess, historically speaking, gothic literature, which can be, I don't know, there's many different different definitions for it. But um, I like anything that sort of has a, a darker twist to it or that has something you need to figure out while you're reading it, like almost like a, a puzzle with characters. So I generally like to read the genre that I write in. What is in that genre, and this is going to be, I know it's going to be kind of hard to do, 
what is your favorite book in your favorite genre? Um, it is probably Dark Places by Gillian Flynn. She's oh, my okay. biggest inspiration and like idol in the thriller world. So um, if you haven't read it, highly recommend it. I believe my wife has. My wife, we went and saw Gone Girl, the film mm -hmm. adaptation, which is wonderful. I love that movie. Definitely not a movie to watch with the kids around. Um, <laughs> I think that's the last movie my wife and I actually went and saw in the theater. But right before we went and saw the movie, she binged everything by Gillian Flynn, um, read everything. I, I swear, I think she did it in like two weeks. Um, Gillian Flynn's kind of like Chuck Palahniuk, the, the guy who wrote Fight Club. Yeah. They, their novels are very short. They're not very long, mm -hmm. but they're dense. And uh, th there's a lot of material in there, which kind of makes, I think, both of them conducive to uh, film adaptations because you don't really have to worry about if your book is short, it's a lot easier to put the whole thing in there and not really leave anything out as opposed to, say, a Tom Clancy novel mm -hmm. back in the 80s or so, which was like 550 pages. Well, there's no way to put that into a two-hour movie effectively most of the time. But no, she binged Gillian Flynn. Um, is Dark Places the one that HBO adapted into like a miniseries with uh, Amy Adams or am I thinking of something else? No, that's Sharp Objects, which was her first novel. That oh, okay. Debuted Sharp Objects. Um, they're very similar. They both have like a, a true crime element to them or, or like an investigative element to it. Um, Dark Places is about a woman who is the sole survivor of her family's massacre and her brother went to jail for it and she is being convinced by people in the true crime community that he's innocent. So it's kind of like her journey to figure out whether she would, should believe like the prosecutor that he's guilty or that um, he's telling the truth and that he never actually did what um, people think he did. So it's, and there's a lot of fl uh, different perspectives and a lot of flash forwards and flash flashbacks, but it's very, um, it's very addicting. You don't want to put it down. Actually, now that I think about it, now that you mentioned the, the, the plot, they did make this into a movie with Shirley yeah. Theron, didn't it? Didn't they? Yeah, I never saw it. I didn't hear the best reviews of it, so I didn't want it to like taint my uh, my view of the book. But it was yeah made into a movie that I don't think did particularly well as far yeah, as what I hear. I was, was going to say it, it. It didn't do anything at the box office, and I think they piggybacked it within a year after Gone Girl came out. Mm -hmm. So it sounded like it was a uh, a rush job to get it out there. It's kind of like when there's uh, when they have two disaster movies in the same year or two movies about Christopher Columbus within the same year, it's like, you know, we got to get ours out there first type of thing. Yeah. Remember the, the two magician movies that came out in like, Oh, four, like the, Prestige oh, yeah. and the other one. The Illusionist. Yeah. The, <laughs> the Illusionist, Illusionist. With, with Edward Norton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love the prestige. I love the end. Um, and David Bowie is as Nikola Tesla is just inspired casting. And anytime, and this is anytime you have Michael Caine using his natural British accent, yeah, that that Cockney accent that he has is just wonderful. You know, you hear him; he's British, but you hear him like say in the Dark Knight trilogy, where it's a very refined British mm -hmm. accent, and then you get him like in the Prestige, where it's very Cockney, and 
it's it's I just love his Cockney accent. Um, it, for whatever reason, it reminds me of a male Eliza Doolittle from My Fair Lady <laughs> or something or another. I just I just love that accent. I have a soft spot for British accents. Yeah, me too. I've said it before: is that as much as I love Adele singing, I could listen to her talk all day long just mm -hmm. because of her accent. It's just wonderful. Uh, is there a question you want to throw at me? So I will throw at you. Um, what is your Let's see. What is your least favorite trope in it can be movies, but books, movies, stories, what have you? Dude, that's a tough one. Cause I've seen a lot more movies than I've read books lately. I used to be a more voracious reader, but a lot of what I read anymore is nonfiction, which there's it's kinda hard to find a Well yeah, uh, there's no tropes because it's real life. <laughs> yeah, it's kinda hard to find tropes, you know, in, in nonfiction, especially when it's like history. I I'm a yeah. big history person. But as far as my biggest trope is probably the the one that really drives me nuts is the villain that's just doing stuff to do stuff. There's oh, no like, motive. Yeah, bad for be the sake of being bad, essentially. Yeah, bad for the sake of being bad. It's one thing if the villain is bad and they know they're bad and they're okay with it. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. You get a character like and this is going to be kind of simplistic, but Darth Vader, okay? He's bad. He knows he's bad. He's okay with it, okay? And then this, this is the original trilogy. This isn't the prequels. I'm not mm -hmm. going to go there. Yeah. But, you know, or the Emperor. He's bad. He knows he's bad. He's okay with it. He's after power, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a motivation. I can appreciate that. But when you have a villain who's just, who's just there to for furthering the plot – Heck, Shakespeare did that. Um, I watched – I was channel surfing the other day, and I watched uh, Much Ado About Nothing, Kenneth Branagh's film adaptation of the Shakespeare comedy from like 1992 where he had Keanu Reeves cast as the villain. And the only purpose for that villain is to move the plot, mm -hmm. is to move that story forward. Okay. Now, granted, Keanu Reeves is – you know, he doesn't say anything. He has like no dialogue, and he sneers a lot. But he's – you know, I'm okay with that. Keanu Reeves is best when he's not talking. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's one of those actors that 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 does his best work when he has nothing to say. Um, in the John Wick trilogy, he's really good and it doesn't speak very much. I have a problem with a villain that's there simply for the purposes of moving the plot forward to give the the protagonist something to do. Um, the other one that's probably a close second is the what I would call the Bond girl effect. Mm -hmm. or um, used to see it in comic book movies years ago, um, the damsel in distress, the female character that's just there for to be saved. The first Spider-Man movies were like that. You know, Kirsten Dunst was just wasted in those movies, but that's all she was there for was yeah. the damsel in distress type of thing. Um, they've kind of gotten away from that, mm -hmm. um, but that one, that one really drives me – those two drive me nuts. You know, I like my villains complicated. I like them to have motivation, and I like my female characters because I was raised by a very strong feminist. My wife is a strong feminist. My sister is a strong feminist. I, I would grew up in a feminist household where women were just as capable, um, if not more so, than men, um, certainly smarter in most instances than men. So when and then, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So I grew up with, you know, one of the best movies of the 80s is the movie Aliens, which 
has pr- arguably one of the strongest female characters in film of the last 30 or 40 years in it um, with Sigourney Weaver's as Ripley. And then I think that that had a lot to do with James Cameron um, who wrote the script as well. But I just, I, I like my villains to have depth. It's one thing if you're going to be bad to be bad and you know you're bad and that's your motivation is because you want to be bad. I'm fine with that. But at the same time, I want some complexity. I want some motivation. And that's the probably the one trope that just drives me nuts is that the villains there just to be bad and they don't even know that they're being bad. They're just there to move the plot and that irritates me. Yeah, there's a lot of that in horror, especially horror movies where there's like a demon or a witch or and they're just evil because they have decided to be. And I just find that really boring. I just I don't know. I would prefer there to be some motivation behind it, whether it's power or money or taking over the world, even if they've been done to death. I just kind of find it's like, oh, there's a demon in your house and he just wants to scare you because reasons. The two villains that I can think of. You know, in the last few years, the last 10 years or so, that people really identified with them, and they're both from comic book movies, but the way that those characters were presented, they had a motivation, and you kind of – it kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. Heath Ledger's Joker in the Dark Knight, the way they wrote that character, the way that the Nolan brothers wrote that character, he had a motivation. His motivation was to show the hypocrisy of the system. You're protecting a system that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And everything you and it was and it was also partially because he wanted to watch the world burn. That's a motivation that makes sense. You know, he wasn't Nicholson's Joker where he's just you know there to be funny yeah. um, and just to do things randomly. The Joker had a very clear agenda and a very clear motivation. I and that's what made him so compelling. And it's probably why Heath Ledger, partly why Heath Ledger won the Oscar posthumously. Mm-hmm. The other one is you know from the the last two Avenger movies was Thanos. Okay, he wants to destroy. Half of existence. Why? So that the other half can survive. It's a very distorted motivation. It's it doesn't make it's wrong, but it's a motivation. It makes sense and it guides everything that that character does. You know, and I can appreciate that, as opposed to others other movies where it's just okay. Like you said with horror movies, um, slasher films. I don't like – as far as horror goes, I don't like slasher films because, okay, great. By the seventh or eighth film, you've got Jason killing a whole bunch of kids that had absolutely nothing to do with what happened to him. Mm-hmm. The same with Nightmare on Elm Street, um, any slasher movie that's like that. You know, Whereas you know, to me, the scariest movie that I've ever seen is still Jaws because yeah. it could happen. It, it you know that's something that could legitimately realistically happen. Yeah, it's Horror- into that man versus nature thing, which is really primitive. Like that's a deep fear. Like we're yeah. afraid of like our own planet because you know it's not easy to survive on our you know on your own, especially in like the ocean because it's not our natural habitat. So I think yeah, yeah that, that's it, more it, terrifying. It, it touches something very primordial. It it's that whole it really gets into the nature. It really gets into that a fight or flight type of thing, and the other one. One is, um, you know, the other movie that kind of scares me is the original Alien from '79 mm-hmm. because it's it's a it's a force because again it's a force of nature. It has no motivation. It simply is. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. This is what it does, and that's all it does. And that's when you 
have something like that. You can't reason with it. You can't figure it out. All you can do is, you know, either confront it or run away from it. Those are your only options. Um, and that type of thing where you don't have choices, where you don't have options, those that's kind of scary because you're 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 powerless at that point in a lot of ways. I actually, um, I think the most terrifying villain, he's not actually from a straight-up horror movie, even though I think it could be classified as one, is Anton Chigurh from No Country from Old Men. Like, I, I have, find him... Oh, go ahead. I have not seen that movie yet. I have been oh, wanting to it. see that movie. I'm pretty sure it's in my Netflix queue. I have not... There are some movies that I've... That, are, that have been there for a long time, and I just haven't gotten around to it. I have a kind of a... My love hate. I have a love hate relationship with the Coen Brothers just because they they try so many different things and sometimes it works, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. He he shows up on like you know he shows up as like the top villain in a lot of lists or he's in the top three, um, right up there with Hannibal Lecter and and maybe a couple others, um, all the time. And I'm like, okay, at some point I've just got to sit down and and see this movie sit down and and absorb this character and i've just not been able to do it yet yeah the next time you have like two hours to focus on something and like put your phone away don't even like try to multitask during it it like it absorbs you and it's so it's a very powerful movie but he is straight up terrifying he's far more terrifying than any of the slashers combined i just he's merciless and he has like a set of principles that he governs himself by and there's something almost disturbing about that, about how, like, this guy has sort of decided how or when he's going to kill by some sort of, like, almost predetermined set of rules that he has. And I don't know, I just, like, I would much rather come across Michael Myers on a, in a dark alley than Anton Sugar by a long shot. Yeah, there's something about a villain that is smart, mm -hmm. that knows... That has complete mastery and control of every situation. They know how exactly it's almost um, it's almost like a Sherlock Holmes type of thing where they know how everything is going to work out. They've done they've accounted for everything. They have complete control because they know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen in every situation that they're in. That's that's a when you when you do that when it, when you do that for a protagonist. Protagonist is kind of boring. Mm -hmm. But when you do that for a villain, that makes them terrifying. Yeah. And yeah, I love and I love and I love Javier Bardem plays Chigger, mm -hmm. doesn't he? Yeah. I I love on the few occasions where I've seen Javier Bardem perform, and the most the one that comes to mind is Skyfall, the Bond film, where he's just wonderful in that movie. Um, he plays a great villain, Bond villain, especially opposite Daniel Craig. But he's just one of those guys that He's dynamic, but he's also in control. He his he his everything he does in his performance is not random. It's you can tell that that it's kind of planned out. That he's put a lot of attention to detail into what he's going to do, what he how he's going to say his lines, how he's going to, you know, his facial expressions, his how he carries himself, and all that kind of stuff. You can just tell that he's put a lot of forethought into the into his performance. You know, almost like he does it before every scene. That he's in. Yeah, yeah. He it's very clear how calculated he is as an actor when you watch him. And he even I, I watched an interview with him and he I think expressed some um, reservation taking the role because his, back in like 07 when this came out, his English wasn't as good as it is now because he hadn't 
done as much English roles in his life. And um, I feel like it almost his accent almost adds a, a better element to it. I think if you had a flat American or it's, it takes place in Texas or even a Texan accent, it just wouldn't come off as, I, I don't know, like it, it gets your attention when he's on screen because no one else has a Spanish accent in that movie. And I think it makes it better. So it, I'm glad that he um, he took the role, even though he wasn't sure if he could uh, pull off the, another language. Okay, let's uh, try another question here. Something a little more random. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you had to choose, which would you – if you had to choose your form of immortality, which would you choose? Would you want to be put into a robot body where the body could be destroyed at some point? Or would you want to be downloaded into a computer and like live in like live within the internet? Well, would you? My two I have two questions on those before I can answer them. One, okay. I, I recently had seen Ghost in a Shell, so there's like a company owns the robotic body, so you basically belong to them. Okay. So in this situation, do I belong to an enterprise, or am I my own free person, even as a robot? Let's say you have no corporate overlord. Okay. And in the internet one, can I like, I guess, move around almost like a Sims game inside of the internet or am I just, or do I not have like a, a way of controlling it? I guess. Am I just like a blob in a computer? Let's say that you have conscious autonomy while you're in the internet. You can, you can move around, you can go different places. You are, you're kind of the ghost in the machine for lack of a better term, since you brought it ghost in the shell. Um, I think I would still have to pick the robot body. I like existing in real space, not just virtual space. And um, even if it could get destroyed, at least, you know, minor things, you can sort of have repairs for it. And as long as no uh, corporate, you know, thing tries to own my body and tell me what to do with it, I'm, I'm on board with being a robot for the most part. I would, I think I would go with, being downloaded into a computer because I'm a 44-year-old white man whose body is slowly starting to fall apart on him. And I, the one thing that probably terrifies me the most as I get older is losing my faculties, mm -hmm. um, the ability to think, to make decisions, to absorb information, uh, to accumulate knowledge, hindering my evolution. Mm-hmm. That probably terrifies me more than anything about getting old and to be able to – if I were downloaded into a computer, I would still be able to do all that without any of those, without concern for – now, granted, there's viruses and there's all kinds of stuff in the yeah. internet. But assuming that I am you know, relatively immune from those things, I would feel better being downloaded into a computer so that I can – I could – one – would assume toward infinity, toward continuing my evolution, continuing my development, becoming more. Now, granted, there are limitations with that. Okay, great. I have all of that knowledge. What do I do with it? Um, is knowledge for knowledge's sake a virtue um, if you can't do anything with it because you have no body? I would assume that if I could be downloaded into a computer, I would probably be – my ability to manipulate um, the internet would probably also be limited. It would be a that type of thing. But between, between the two choices, I would probably go with being downloaded into a computer. Makes 
makes sense. So I feel like you have more potential longevity. I would just be worried about two things, really. I mean, I don't think our mental, like if it's your literal brain being made into a virtual thing, I don't think our brains are meant for living a long time. So I think after maybe 100, 150 years, we would go insane, even if like we kept our physical form and just were able to live a really long time. I just don't think it's, I think our brain just would probably go a little screwy after a while. Um, and I also could see like you, you have, maybe you're uploaded and you're talking to your like great, great, great granddaughter and she's mad at you and she could just like shut off the computer. So it's <laughs> like, shut up grandpa. And just slam the computer shut. <laughs> yeah. And then there would be the whole issue of, I wouldn't be able to, you know, if you're permanently plugged in, there's no way to unplug. Um, it's kind of like, uh, it would kind of, it's kind of like, um, People that um, that are telepathic. Everybody says, "Oh, it'd be great if you could read other people's minds," and you're like, "No, it wouldn't, because yeah. what if you can't turn it off? You're hearing everything that everybody's thinking all the time, all at once. You'd go insane. Yeah. Um, and if you're plugged in all the time, it's the same risk. It would really depend on how my consciousness is converted into." into a computer program and uploaded, you know, can I disconnect or can I be, can I self isolate? Because if I can't, then yeah, like you said, it wouldn't take long for me to probably just start going nuts. And then I'm all of a sudden I'm Hal from mm -hmm. 2001 and I, I just go insane and start, you know, killing people in their sleep. <laughs> so, okay. Um, where would you like to go next? Yep. Let's see here. What is the worst advice you've ever gotten? Oh. When you sent me these questions, I was like, I was really flummoxed because I'm like, can I think of one piece of advice that I got that was really, really great, that was the best I ever got? Or was there one piece of advice that I got that was just the absolute worst? And was it actually advice or was it just an idea that somebody had? That I just, you know, looked at and said, well, that's that's brilliant or that's insane. I mean, an idea can account too, because like there's just like yeah. notions that are kind of like advice that just exists in our society. So it doesn't have to be like a person who like said, Hey, you do a thing. It could just be what's like a common thing. The worst advice that I probably ever heard or ever got, fortunately, it didn't apply to me because by that point by the time I heard this advice, that ship had sailed. Um, <laughs> I was already in my early 20s. Probably the worst advice I ever heard was, and I'm not going to say where I heard it from, was there's no good reason to go to college. By that point, I was in my early 20s. I already had a college degree, and before it was all said and done, I'd pick up two more. But that was probably of real specific advice was there's no good reason to go to college. And I pushed back on it. I argued it against it because I vehemently disagreed with it. But that's as far as specifics goes because those four years that I went to college, they say you, you know, college is a transformative experience. But and and they're right. Um, it's absolutely true. That period of time when you're transitioning from adolescence to full-blown adulthood, 
that trend, that period of time, though, whether it's four years or five years, or if you're really ambitious, six years, mm -hmm. that period of time is absolutely crucial. And it was absolutely crucial for me. I grew up and matured and really became the person, established the foundations of who I am now during that four year period. And I went away to school. I left my town. I didn't go super far away, but I went far enough away to where I was there. I was by myself. It was a really small school. I was essentially isolating myself and I could focus on why I was there, which was to get an education, to do the things that I needed to do. But also I had the, the time and the flexibility to work on all these other things that I had needed to work on. And by the time that four-year period was done, all a lot of the issues that I had to deal with were dealt with. I'm I was a well a well-rounded person ready to take on experience, which was what was missing. So that was that's probably the worst advice that I've ever heard was that there's no good reason to go to college. There's plenty of re good reasons to go to college. There's a million good reasons to go to college beyond simply getting the education. My parents just looked at it like you're going to college no matter what. This is not a discussion. This is not a debate. This is what you're going to do. Um, they even, you know, kind of directed me as to where I could go, and more importantly, where I couldn't go. But it wasn't an option. And I've got a 13-year-old son now. He's in eighth grade. Next year is high school. Once you start high school, you're, you know, things start getting more real because what you do starts to affect getting into college, where you go to college, what you want to learn in college. And he has absolutely no interest in any of that at all because he has a very narrow, myopic um, goal set that I'm okay with if he wants to pursue that. But he needs – if that goal set isn't there for him 10 years from now or it's on the decline 10 years from now, he needs – options. He needs to have options available to him and going to college gives him those options. And also I think it would do wonders for him. He and I, he at 13 is, I'm a lot of the same way at his age that, you know, as he is now, my son is the way I was at 13. So I see a lot of that in him. And I think that college would do a lot of good for him as it did for me. But the worst advice I ever got was probably or that I ever heard was there's no good reason to go to college. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, a college degree is pretty important in the modern era. Um, but my, my worst advice is similar to it. It does have to do with college, but um, it's more about this like living for just building your resume mentality. That's really common, whether you're in high school trying to get into college or you're in college trying to get out. I mean, obviously thinking about your future is important. But I just met a lot of helicopter style parents. My mom wasn't really like that, but um, there just happened to exist in my friend group who were just, you know, forcing their kids to do a whole bunch of things. They like were weird that I didn't have like a, a job while I was in college because they're like, oh, you need it for your resume. Just do it for your resume. And I don't think that's a good way to live one's life <laughs> to just do things, to put it on a sheet of paper. So I just think that it's... um. I don't know if, if you you have a financial need to have a job, then clearly have one. If you want to focus on your studies and you that's what you're doing right now, I don't feel like there's this need to just constantly pad your resume just to you know 
just because someone is telling you you have to do it. Yeah, I, resumes are good for telling you what you've done, but really what resumes do, and I know this firsthand because I've had to find a new job in the last couple of months. I had to go job hunting, mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't had to do that in almost 20 years. Wow. And a resume doesn't – it tells you what you've done, but what really what a resume is supposed to do is to tell other people what you know. It's really – that's what it's really supposed to say. It tell other people is what you know. Okay, this is what you've done, and then they can extrapolate or they're supposed to be able to extrapolate from that what you know. That's why when you put, you know, this is the job I did, this is who I worked for, and this is the period of time I worked for, and then you have to put those bullet points underneath it of what that job involved because they want to – it's not enough for them that they've got to know what you know. They've mm -hmm. got to know what you did so that they can extrapolate from that what you know. Um, what your skill set is, what what your knowledge base is. But yeah, um, I can remember when I was a, f a freshman orientation, 1993, showing my age, um, went to freshman orientation at my college. My parents went with me, and we went to this um, seminar. And the dean, the dean of students, the the dean of instruction, gives a speech, and she says, after four years. You will not be qualified to do anything in the in your field of study. So if you study it, if you study accounting, you're not an accountant. If you study biology, you're not a biologist. After four years, you're not going to be qualified to do anything specific in your field of study. What you're going, what you will be is, and what your degree will tell any prospective employer is that you are trainable, that you can learn, mm -hmm. that you can adapt, and that you can grow. That's what this that's what a four year college education is going to tell a prospective employer. And my dad got the stink eye about it. He's like, Well, if you're not going to be qualified to do anything, why am I paying for you to go to college? And I kind of had to explain it to him. And then I kind of had to explain it to him a few more times over the next four <laughs> years, even though every time he and I talked on the phone, um, we talked about school because he he didn't go to college. He went to um he went to trade school. He was a carpenter. He was a construction worker and went into construction management by trade. So he never had the college experience. So it was completely new to him. So when he first heard that, he it kind of you know uh, uh, ruffled his feathers a little bit. But over time, he was able to understand, you know, what I did, what I was doing, why I was doing it, what and how these things were going to benefit me to where. You know, when I got out and I foolishly tried to go to decided to go to graduate school for a year, that was a bad idea. Um, <laughs> he was completely on board with it. Um, he completely understood everything. Um, but yeah, resume padding, I don't resume padding for the sake of the padding itself mm -hmm. does you no good. But if you're able to demonstrate your knowledge and your experience, you know, it, it's one thing to get the experience and to get to try new things towards your education that's one thing i mean an internship an internship does that yeah. um in a lot of ways but uh padding for the sake of padding yeah that's um just to put something just so you can say it's on your resume well that's all well and good but if you didn't get anything out of it if you didn't get any benefit from the experience then beyond just being able then just a, a line on a resume then what was the point yeah i think if it distracts from your main purpose like if you're going to college because you want to be a chemist or something and getting a side job is making you get worse grades or it's stressing you out, well, then that's not really 
helping you in the long run. I mean, sure, it might be good to have some extra money and have a, you know, another job on your resume, which could help in the future. But if you're like, if you're not doing the thing that you set out to do, then there's no point in just continually adding stuff to your schedule if it's not actually helping like your main goal in life or for the next few years. I think we have enough time for one more question, and I think it is my turn. I think I'm going to ask this one, although it might make, we might go a little long with this one because it's a That's deep fine. question. What's the best choice you've made? Um, so it actually is still on the, the college train here. It's a common theme, I think. Um, so I actually moved to New York City when I was 18 to go to college, and I was living in a suburb outside of Portland, Oregon. So it's a bit of a shift. It's a literally across the country. I moved to go there, and uh, living in New York is a huge culture shock, even if you're, you know, from a somewhat metropolitan area. Um, and it was rough going at first because New York in general will kick your ass. It's a, not an easy place to live, but it's the best choice I've ever made. And a lot of people, when I told them I was going to school in the East Coast, gave me a lot of black for it. I don't know why people care that much, but a lot of people were like, oh, you're going to come back within a year or you're not going to like it. And I never went back because um, it was just the best choice. It definitely made me a more capable person. Why did you make that decision? Was it the school and it just happened to be in New York or was it about the New York experience itself that attracted you? It was about the, the New York experience first. I basically only looked at schools in New York. That was my only, I guess, goal. It was just on my bucket list. I wanted to live in New York City for at least a, a short period of time while I was still young. And I figured college was a good time to do it because you have, you know, kind of room and board somewhat set up and you have a, a purpose, you're getting an education. So it's not like just blindly moving to a city and having to find a job and an apartment kind of on your own, which I think is harder to do. School kind of gives you a, a structure and um, some connections. So I thought it would be a good time to sort of do this as like a, an adventure. And it was definitely an adventure. And I definitely don't regret it, even though it is so expensive to live there and people are not always the nicest. Were you there, all, were you there for four years? Uh, yeah, I was in the, the general area. I didn't end up living in Manhattan the entire time, but I was in um, the, the surrounding neighborhoods. Did you um, did you uh, stay there, uh, say, in the summertime when school wasn't in session? Yeah, I stayed most of the time. I only had one summer where I wasn't doing classes or an internship. So there was only one summer my, after my freshman year that I went back to Oregon and just, like, did nothing. Uh, the rest of the time, I was doing school and work. So I was there pretty much the entire year straight, except for like a holiday break or a spring break. Um, and New York in the summer is really fun, especially when you don't have like a full schedule. So I'm, I'm glad I was able to stay when a lot of people weren't there. When you're shopping or looking at schools in New York City, how many options do you think that there probably were available to you at the time? Because I can only imagine how many colleges or universities are in New York City within the five boroughs. I can only, it's got to be, it's got to be hundreds. Uh, well, there's a lot. And they, a lot of them have like very specific purposes. But the three I applied to were um, NYU, Fordham, and Marymount Manhattan. And Marymount Manhattan is my alma mater. 
so that I chose that one. It's a, a very small liberal arts school on the Upper East Side. Um, I got waitlisted at both of the other ones, and then eventually, I can't remember which one, they were like, come, and I was like, no, because you're expensive, and I already said yes to another school. Uh, so there were, um, I wanted to study English and psychology, so those were like the main schools that I could study uh, that in Manhattan. My wife and I, I want to say it was 2015, my wife and I went to New York City for the first time, just us, no mm -hmm. kids, in late July, and we f just fell in, we were in, Man now granted, we were in Manhattan, we were, our hotel was like a block from Central Park, so we're like in the best part of New yeah. York City. We were there for three or four days, and we just absolutely fell in love with with that city. Except for the airport. The airport sucks. Well, all, um, all New York airports are a pain in the ass, so that's not surprising. But, we, but we, we, we loved it, and we were like we're, – we're the type of couple where – and my parents are kind of like this, at least when they were married. They're divorced now, but we are the type of couple that if we didn't have kids, we'd live in – we'd live in a major metropolitan area. We'd live in New York City, or we'd live in – maybe we'd live in Chicago, um, but we – or you know, I'm in Indian. I'm in outside of Indianapolis. We might live in, you know, a condo in downtown Indianapolis or something like that. We're we're urbanites in that regard. But we were we we were there for three or four days. We saw a Broadway show, an off Broadway show actually, um, but it was one that we really wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did the tours. We went up in the the rebuilt World Trade Center building, uh, Trade Center One, I think is what it's called, or something like that. And we yeah. just even the even the subways. We took the subways. Um, we we just we now I understand that the subways now compared to then are way way worse. Or they were yes. really bad then, and we just didn't notice. Um, <laughs> but we just fell in love with New York. And and I told my wife, I go, if we didn't have kids, I or when the kids are grown and gone, I could totally, except for the cost of living, that might be an issue. Um, I could see us totally living here. I could totally do this, um, even if I'm old. I could totally do this. And we just loved – there was just between – just there was just something about New York City. Now, granted, I, I we didn't go to the, the boroughs, Brooklyn, and I'm drawing a blank on the rest of them. But we didn't do that, but it's there's just something about that place. I've been to Chicago a lot of times. It's nice. We've been to a handful of other smaller cities. But there's just something that's different about New York. I I can't really put my finger on it, but there's, it's some it's it's some kind of it has a, it has a completely different personality I think than probably. Uh, it kind of bummed me out because every day in New York something is super beautiful happening. Like you just look up and there's something kind of iconic. You just. The buildings are beautiful, the Central Park's beautiful, Bryant Park's beautiful. And when you kind of move to the birds, you're kind of just bummed out because not everything is, I don't know, as nice looking in my opinion. Because I just think in general, like urban scapes are very beautiful to me. I have a lot of photos of like New York and Paris and London around my house. Um, so that bummed me out. Also, um, I actually had to get my driver's license because I didn't know how to drive. <laughs> and that sucked. <laughs> yeah, driving. Driving in New York City seems like the ultimate futile endeavor. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's no point. It's uh, I've done it a few times. I mean, I have been the driver. My husband has been the driver, but it is so infuriating 
no, I couldn't do it. <laughs> my sister long ago did a uh, – she got accepted to Rutgers, which is in New Jersey, and my parent she was out there for the first – she lasted one semester. Um, but while she was there, my parents went and visited her, and they decided to go into New York City while they were visiting her, and they decided to drive. Ooh. And – um, I did not go. I did not partake in this endeavor. And all the all I heard about I was like, oh, so tell me what was New York City was like. And all I heard was about the traffic and the driving and how awful yeah. it was. <laughs> I'm like, really? You went to this wonderful place that you've never been to before, and this is all that you came away from it with. So, yeah, it just – driving in New York just seems like the oh, – yeah. it would make more sense for you to beat your head against the wall than try to get anywhere by car in New York City. Yeah, uh, I once it, it once took us, um, we had to drive through Manhattan for some reason from where we live up in Connecticut to Jersey where my husband's parents live. And um, I believe the, the main bridge was out, so we had to go through New York City. And I think it took us three hours, which normally it's like an hour and 20 minutes. And we were just stuck by the Holland Tunnel, not moving for a full hour. It was the most frustrating thing of my entire life. So I would avoid the driving at all costs well i think we're gonna try to, to to wrap this up a little bit vp where can they find your podcast um so you can find my podcast on podbean itunes google play Podcasts, stitcher and spotify i don't know do you want to give out your does the um does the uh the podcast have a website uh, the podcast, if you go to deadletterspodcast.podbean.com, that's the main hosting site for the show. Um, it also has a Twitter and Facebook, so it's at deadletterspod on both of those platforms. VP Morris, thank you very much for for being the inaugural guest on the <laughs> I Have So Many Questions podcast. I, I really appreciate it. I had a really fun time. I enjoyed the, this conversation and talking about these questions. I'm going to save this list of the ones that we didn't get to in case you come back and we're able to do this again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a blast and totally let's save those questions and we can maybe revisit sometime in the near future. My guest has been VP Morris, a writer, podcaster, creator of the, uh, the dead letters podcast. That was uh, VP Morris, author and creator of the Dead Letters podcast, which I just subscribed to today and I'm looking forward to getting caught up on her audio drama. Uh, I checked it out and there her she's got six episodes out and they're about 30 minutes long. So a good program to listen to uh, on your commute or while you're doing dishes or the laundry or mowing the yard. Definitely recommend that you check out her podcast and I hope to in the near future be able to read her novel when it is published. Very special thanks to VP Morris for coming on the show. I very much look forward to having her back sooner rather than later. A very wonderful person to have a conversation with even though at times especially during the editing of that interview I caught myself monologuing. I kind of hogged up the uh, the airspace to a certain degree. I'll try to do better with that next time. My apologies to VP Morris for uh, for, bogarting, for bogarting much of the conversation. If you have any comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns about my interview with VP Morris, 
or about any of the other episodes that I've put out there previously. I will have all of the uh, the contact information and hyperlinks for all of VP Morris's work, um, in particular her podcast, the Dead Letters podcast. I'll have the link for the Podbean website. Uh, so you can go there directly. She's also on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. I'll also have her uh, her uh, Twitter handle in the show notes as well. But if you have any comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns for me uh, about this program, here's how you can reach the show. The email address is at, not at, is I have questions podcast at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at I have so many pod or just look up I have so many questions podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. Facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts at, especially if it's from Apple. This has been I have so many questions, a special edition of I have so many questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time and for your patronage, especially on this episode. Thank you to VP Morris and good night, Cleveland. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using audio from 911 calls, interrogations, trial testimony and interviews, Morbidology takes a look at some of the most mysterious and disturbing crimes from all across the world. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. From shocking murders to missing children, we focus on a variety of cases and put you, the listener, right into the middle of the investigation. Listen to Morbidology now on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean and wherever else you get your podcasts.